The Bob Murphy Show, episode 139. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. In this one, I'm going to be talking with George Reisman, who is uh, Professor Emeritus of Economics at Pepperdine University. He's the author of Capitalism, a Treatise on Economics. If you want to go to his website, he's got one at capitalism.net. And also his blog is at georgereismansblog.blogspot.com. And his Twitter is ggreisman. And those links, you can find all of them at bobmurphyshow.com slash 139. Some more information about George in case you're like, oh, okay, guys, maybe do I want to listen George got his PhD at NYU. You know who his uh, dissertation advisor was? Go ahead, guess. Ludwig von Mises, that's right. Not so many people can say that, but George can. He also uh, was involved with Ayn Rand and the objectivist movement back in the day. So in the beginning of this interview, that's what we talk about, just some of the, the personal history that, that George knows, just to get that down on record. And then... In the second half, we pivot and talk about his contributions to economics that he codified in his massive treatise, Capitalism. So this book, it's a physically impressive work. Um, it's probably the most comprehensive defense of capitalism that's ever been written. Israel Kirzner, when he reviewed this book, said, and, and Kirzner admitted he felt guilty about doing it, and he resisted the... Uh, the temptation for a while, but felt like he had no choice. In his own words, he vandalized the book because he he actually like ripped out the pages of the various you know into separated into its various sections because he just thought I can't sit, I can't read this thing it's too big. Israel Kirzner said that that in order for him to digest it. So my point is this is a big book. Now because of that, I think some people are intimidated and don't really delve delve into it, and they just assume well anything that's important and, and original in there would have been absorbed into the movement, right? Like I'm sure somebody else read this stuff. So what I'm doing in this interview is I wanted to give George a, an opportunity to explain some of the controversial things he does in this book to make sure we get it down for posterity so that, um, you know, future economists, particularly those in the Austrian tradition can see if, if George was onto something here. So, I, th I think one way of describing it is that George read a lot of the classical economists and thought that the modern Austrian tradition, relying as it does on the subjective marginal revolution that in a sense overturned the classical approach to value theory, that George wants to make sure that the Austrians don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, as it were. And he thinks there's a lot of insight into the economic process that the classical economists had that the modern Austrians have missed in particular, what we focus on in this interview is George's argument that contrary to not just Karl Marx, but also Adam Smith, labor or wages are not the primary 
source of income or the thing that drives the economic process. And then the other factors come in and sort of get their cut and maybe siphon it away from the workers. That's clearly the way Karl Marx looked at it. But there's also a sense in which even Adam Smith thought that in the, you know, uh, in the simplest baseline case that labor would receive 100% of the remuneration for products. And Reisman, I think, gives a good argument as to why, no, if you're going to go that route, you would have to conclude that it's profit that is like the primary or the default form of income or the original form of income. And that the introduction of other factors of production cuts into the profit rate or the profit margin. Okay. So, I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's just a technical analysis, but you can see the rhetorical or political, if you will, implications of that, if that were, if he's correct in just that technical statement. Um, and he also then relates it to this famous proposition that John Stuart Mill had that, that many of, if you're a trained economist, you'll probably recognize and you'll see that Mill's proposition that the demand for commodities is not the demand for labor, that that takes on a whole new meaning in light of Reisman's work. Okay, so just to be clear, I'm not here necessarily endorsing Reisman's framework, but I think there's definitely enough here where we shouldn't just assume, oh, somebody would have flagged this if this were important, that this is this is good stuff and I don't think you'd be wasting your time if you read into what George is doing. Um, at, at the very least, reading people who are appreciative of the classical economists is a good habit because the classical economists were full of wisdom and just reading those people, it's if nothing else, it helps you appreciate uh, modern economics that much more. So in any event, without further ado, here is my interview with George Reisman. Well, George, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Well, good to be here, Bob. Thank you for asking me on. So the bulk of what I think we're going to talk about is the meat of some of your uh, contributions in your voluminous book, Capitalism. But I think before we get into that, I know you have some personal anecdotes of, you know, just you've you've known some of the heavyweights in the um, Austro-Libertarian movement. And so I thought maybe we could start out with some some fun anecdotes and maybe you could tell some stories about um, meeting some of these giants. Okay, sure. Uh, I guess the, the most interesting one is uh, an attempted meeting with Mises. Uh, I became friends in high school with Ralph Rako, who I think you knew pretty well. And uh, we were both ardent admirers of Mises. Uh, we were pretty young, uh, uh, about 15. And uh, we were trying to figure out how we could possibly meet him. And uh, I had had some experience, I think, selling subscriptions to magazines door to door. And mm -hmm. I thought, oh, I've got a good idea. Uh, we'll just ring his doorbell. We knew where he lived uh, on West End Avenue in New York City. And uh, tell him we're selling subscriptions to the Freeman, uh, hoping in that way to get him involved in a conversation. Well, we ended up being uh, pretty well disappointed. Uh, he opened the door after we rang the bell, and uh, he was obviously preparing to go out to something, a pretty formal occasion. Uh, he was wearing a, a dress shirt and a tuxedo slacks with suspenders and everything on except the jacket. and. Uh, told him we were uh, selling subscriptions to the Freeman. And he said in a thick uh, German accent, 
by Hans Freeman and goes for. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he, he wasn't well, wrong. <laughs> well, so we both shrink from our then current height uh, down to about two inches. Uh, we ultimately did meet him. Uh, Ralph uh, got in touch with the Foundation for Economic Education, which at the time was uh, located in a, in a New York City suburb. And he arranged, uh, he got an invitation for the two of us to come up and visit the foundation and meet the people there. And uh, when there, we told them of our tremendous interest in Mises, and uh, they arranged a meeting for us in his apartment a few months later. I remember the date was uh, February 23rd, 1953. I'm in uh, in my autographed copy of Human Action. And uh, while there, uh, he invited the two of us to attend his seminar, which was at uh, NYU in Lower Manhattan. And that was just fantastic. And so we started attending fairly soon thereafter. And uh, I continued attending. This was I was an upper senior in high school at the time, and I continued till I got my doctorate under him, uh, which was, uh, I think, 10 years later. So just to be clear, you got your undergrad degree at NYU and then also got your PhD? No, I got my undergraduate degree at Columbia. Okay. And then uh, I, I really, I don't think I could have gotten a PhD anywhere else just because of the conflict of views. Mm-hmm. So uh, I got my MBA and PhD at NYU. I, I um, enrolled in uh, the, the summer of 1957, right after graduating college. Now, I don't understand. Now, I don't know exactly how things worked back. Like, did you have to like prove you were really good at math? I mean, in other words, like that's how to get into like NYU nowadays. You know, there's there's the GREs and things like that. Did they have that sort of a thing, or was it more like if a professor sponsored you? then that was enough to get in? Or how did that work? Well, I don't recall any great profound significance being attached to any particular exam. Uh, And I I would have done well. Math was my best subject as Mm -hmm. an undergraduate. That wouldn't have been a problem. But uh, Mises was the only one I I really wanted to study under. I probably could not have gotten through anywhere else. I'd have been thrown out for a subversive activity. (laughs) So can you, um, so how did that work? Like, was there a point at which, um, was there a gradual thing where over time, you know, he, he got to know you better and then like, did you work up the courage to ask him or did he suggest to you, Hey, it looks like you have, you know, a talent for this. Have you considered a career or how, do you remember how that developed? Uh, I, I think I just went without saying, I, I, I had already translated uh, one of his books in the summer of my sophomore year epistemological problems of economics. So uh, he knew me pretty well, and he knew I had some ability. And uh, I think I I may have mentioned once I was considering uh, possibly going to uh, uh, Hayek in Chicago, uh, but he he clearly indicated that uh, he wanted me to stay in New York, which I was very happy. Oh, wow. Yeah, that that is is nice. So so what actually was your, your dissertation on? Well, first I had an MBA thesis. Mm-hmm. The MBA thesis was uh, titled uh, The Classical Economists and the Austrians on Value and Cost. Uh, I, I've been thinking of uh, 
of publishing it, but I don't know if it's really good enough to be published. My uh, doctoral dissertation was called the the theory of originary interest, and uh, it contains the great bulk of what I think of as my own you know, contributions to economics. Yeah, uh, you know, in the seminar, Alf and I met Rothbard. Mm-hmm. He was he was already there, and uh, we hit it off uh, right away. And the three of us, and then some others, would uh, go out after each seminar uh, to some local restaurant, and uh, none of us would get home before one or two in the morning. And uh, anyway, in discussions with Rothbard and also with Mises. I developed a couple of disagreements. Rothbard uh, thinks that in order for there to be continuing economic progress, uh, there has to be a continuing fall in the rate of profit or originary interest. And uh, that seems unsettling to me. I thought of this comparable to the sun moving out. Since the prospect of profit is what keeps the whole system in motion, uh, the idea that the rate of profit would continually fall and ultimately leave hardly anything left, uh, th- that just seemed uh, uh, something like, like malevolent, I guess you'd call it. And so I was determined to investigate that. And then Mises also has a, a, a proposition, you know, his doctrine of the price premiums. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, he has a, a doctrine of the negative price premium in which he argues to the extent that prices are expected to fall, the uh, market rate of interest is equivalently reduced. So if, if we were expecting, let's say, a 2% annual fall in prices, whatever the market rate of interest would otherwise have been, it'll be 2% less. And that disturbed me also because I was wondering, well, what if the rate of interest were already very low? Let's say the rate of interest were uh, already at uh, 2%. And now we would have very rapid economic progress. And let's assume prices would fall at the rate of 3% a year. According to the negative price premium doctrine, that would imply a negative interest rate of minus 1%. And so I was very unhappy with that. So I had these, uh, these questions on my list. I had a list of questions that accumulated over time. Hey, hey, George, can I ask you, I'm just trying to get the timeline right here. So had Man Economy and State come out yet, or Rothbard just had that stuff in his head and and was talking to you about it? He was working on it. Okay. He was working on it at the time. I think it didn't appear until uh, maybe 1960 or something like that, or maybe a little before. Well, Uh, I think it came out in, was it 62? I think is when it came out, maybe. Um, uh, I know... uh, after we would go somewhere following the seminar, uh, or we might meet at his apartment, he would first start to work at around midnight or even later. Mm-hmm. He he kept uh, unusually late hours from the, sometime after midnight till uh, into the morning, I guess. So that's how he wrote uh, *Man, Economy, and State* in that uh, framework. Just for the benefit of the listener, I and mean, also to make sure, George, that I'm thinking of the same argument that you are. So the thing with Mises, I think that's pretty straightforward. Most people understand that pretty well. But with Rothbard, are you referring, George, I know in Man, Economy, and State, he spells out an idea where um, we're in like long-run equilibrium, and then for the economy to progress, there has to be a one-time fall in time preferences, and then that 
induces more net saving and net investment, and then there's more capital per head, and so output right. per head's higher. But the, once the system settles down into the new equilibrium, then that's it. And so there wouldn't be like there wouldn't be like secular growth. Uh, you're saying what I understand you were saying now is uh, you think his position was that the economy would uh, settle into a new position of continuous progress. No, not continuous progress. That the only way to get continuous progress is that the rate of in, the rate of time preference would have to keep falling. Right. Okay. That's what okay. I yeah. think his position actually okay. is. Yeah. So uh, I was disheartened by this idea mm -hmm. that the rate of profit has to continually fall because it seemed to imply that at some point the system must burn itself out. Right. It seems like it spells the demise of capitalism one way or the other. Yeah, that's the end of things. And I, I wanted mm -hmm. it to be indefinitely continuing, permanent. Did, now, did and, you ever like ask him that point blank? Like, Did, did, did he say, say what the implications of that would be? Well, we discussed it now and mm -hmm. then, but uh, never sufficiently. And uh, I, I didn't have my position fully developed at the time, mm -hmm. but that was definitely his position was definitely uh, the rate of profit needs to continually fall to have continual capital accumulation. That if it didn't fall, capital mm -hmm. accumulation and economic progress would come to an end. Now, okay. Um, mm -hmm. And so was it in thinking of your dissatisfaction with Mises on the price premium and Rothbard on this issue, you're saying that's what led to your doctoral dissertation? Yeah, that was part of it. Now, mm -hmm. you see, I was making a list of uh, unanswered questions. I forget just how big the list was. And I mentioned that I picked as my uh, MBA thesis, uh, the classical economists and the Austrians on value and cost. And I, I read... I, the first economists I ever read were some of the classical economists. Uh, the first book on economics I ever tried to read was The Wealth of Nations. I was 13 years old. And the reason I picked The Wealth of Nations was that was the book everyone claimed uh, made the case for capitalism. I didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. And um, so I started with The Wealth of Nations. I was very disappointed in it because it was pretty clear to me that his views were similar to those of Marx in some important ways. And then uh, I bought a book on the history of economic thought uh, called Economic Doctrines, which uh, served the purpose of giving me some idea of who came when. And so the next book I attempted to read was uh, Ricardo, The Theory, Theory of Political Economy and Taxation. And uh, I had other problems with Ricardo. And now, then the next, I, I got hold of Jevons. I don't know if you've ever read Jevons. Just a like little a, bit. Mm -hmm. He was an independent discoverer of the theory of marginal utility. Mm -hmm. I, I learned some things from him. He was very good. Anyway, uh, by the time I graduated college, uh, I had a lot of unanswered questions. And I thought that uh, the, the Austrian school had not done a good enough job in dealing with Keynes and the uh, the theory of oligopoly and imperfect competition. And uh, I knew that back in the 19th century, neither of these had been problems. Uh, quite the contrary, uh, anything that uh, would have given rise to Keynesianism was totally crushed uh, when classical economics prevailed. So I decided for my MBA thesis 
I'll uh, read, uh, read all the Austrians I hadn't read yet, which was mainly von Bavrik. Well, everyone except Mises really has had to uh, uh, redo the classical economists. Mm-hmm. And so I, I read, uh, I reread Smith, Ricardo, uh, James Mill, who's uh, supply, amazingly underrated, who des- deserves to be read, on a, in particular on the subject of overproduction, and John Stuart Mill, and uh, uh, McCulloch, and maybe a couple of others. And I knew that I had learned an awful lot. And I described my condition to myself at the time that uh, I was intellectually pregnant. Uh-huh. There were things going on in my subconscious that were, that were moving around. And then one day in the summer of 1959, uh, shortly after I completed my MBA thesis, I got Hazlitt's The Failure of the New Economics. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he had a lengthy quotation from John Stuart Mill on the proposition, demand for commodities is not demand for labor. And I read that, and everything started to click. Uh, I began answering this uh, accumulated slew of questions that I had, and uh, I had developed a deeper argument on why the rate of profit didn't have to fall. And I had that worked out. I had an example in which uh, it didn't. we had capital accumulation, but no fall in the rate of profit. And then I realized that what put it all together was Mill's proposition, uh, demand for commodities is not demand for labor. Uh, It's what enables the demand for consumers' goods to exceed the demand for labor. The only reason we have profit is because more is spent to buy the products of business each year than is spent by business in producing them. And uh, Mill's proposition highlights or, or makes it possible to identify where that excess is coming from. And so in this period of uh, like five days in 1959, uh, uh, I was able to answer a whole slew of questions, and that gave me the substance of my uh, doctoral dissertation. Okay, great. So I, well, let's, we, we'll circle back to that because I want you to spell that out. Um, I, you know, I jotted down some of the... the substantive points here that we can get into. And, and you're right. I, I, I think that's, we should do that one for sure. Um, yeah. I'm just trying to get the, the timeline straight here. So also, did, did I understand you before? Were, were you saying when you guys would go to Mises seminar? So for one thing is how, can you just describe like the, the layout? Like, was it in a room with a blackboard or was he just sitting at a table with you guys or how'd that work? Okay. Good question. I, the seminar, uh, in my experience, I, I was at, I think, three or four different locations. Uh, only one was uh, really long-term. The uh, the first time I went to the seminar in the spring of 1953, it was held at uh, NYU's main building at 90 Trinity Place in the Wall Street area. And it was in their seminar room. It was really a, a very nice, uh, proper room for a seminar. Uh, then, uh, in the following fall, I don't know what happened, but we got shoved out to the basement of the building. It was almost impossible. Uh, but then we, we, the seminar was able to move to the Washington Square area. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the geography of New York City at all. Oh, yeah, I went uh, to NYU. So, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. All right. So uh, it was in what had been in the 19th century 
the British consulate in New York, uh, known as the Gallatin House. The address was 6 Washington Square North. A okay. really delightful building. Uh, there were two lions in the front on uh, either side of the stairwell, the staircase. And uh, the seminar room was uh, a gorgeous room. And uh, he'd sit at this, this huge seminar table and everyone else would be gathered around. Uh, most people sitting at the table, uh, some others uh, in chairs around the perimeter of the room. And uh, the seminar would run, I think, from 7.25 to uh, 10 after 9. It's like a, a an hour and 40-minute class. Mm-hmm. Thereabouts, a 9.05, maybe. All right. And then we all retired. Mises, uh, well, occasionally, uh, he would be included afterwards. He would join us. When the seminar had been down in the Wall Street area, uh, we sometimes went to a restaurant called Child's. At that time, it was a chain. I don't know what it is today. Uh, but uh, after the seminar moved up to Washington Square, uh, uh, Mises generally didn't uh, go anywhere afterwards, but uh, Rothbard, Rako, myself, um, Bob Hessen, I think you may know him, uh, some other people, uh, and then Ed Casey, uh, a, a group, of Ronald Hamaway, uh, maybe half a dozen people. We go to a nearby restaurant called The Cookery. Uh, we'd be discussing things, or often, sometimes we'd go to Rothbard's apartment. And in this period, Rothbard and I were very, very good friends. Uh, it's necessary to introduce the fact that that came to an end in 1958. This is another digression. Uh, Rothbard uh, had told us all, and we, we had a name for ourselves, we called ourselves the Circle Bastiat. Uh-huh. And uh, Rothbard told us uh, one night about his uh, meetings with Ayn Rand, who none of us had ever heard of before. Mm-hmm. And uh, he made her sound absolutely fascinating, and everyone wanted to meet her. And so he arranged a meeting. And I remember uh, we had two meetings in the summer of 1954. And, and in fact, uh, the dates, the anniversary has just passed, July 11th and 18th, uh, which both happened to be on, on Saturdays in 1954. So that, that began a connection I had with Ayn Rand, but I didn't get along very well with Ayn Rand in those first two meetings. Uh, I was giving her uh, all of Mises' arguments, the praxeological type arguments, the values are arbitrary and subjective. The Rothbard was, uh, was telling me how amusing he found all this, because he had been through the same thing sometime before. Anyway, so uh, things uh, didn't end too well. Uh, with Ayn Rand at that time. So, George, can I stop you for a second? So, I mean, at this point, her the Fountainhead had come out in the forties, right? So, is, is just yeah. it, it wasn't yeah. on your guys' radar though. But had Rothbard read her books? I'm sure he had. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the Fountainhead came out in 1943. Uh, now, uh, Rothbard not only read the Fountainhead, but he had, I, I think he had also apparently read parts of the draft of Atlas Shrugged because he was telling us about some of the contents of Atlas Shrugged. Mm-hmm. Um, as he, the way he described it was uh, there was this heroine who was sleeping with uh, uh, a succession of libertarian heroes. It wasn't, <laughs> quite, wasn't quite true. It was two, uh, uh, Reardon and John Galt. Uh, anyway, 
Same Describe gender. a book in one sentence. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, quite hefty. So, uh, as I say, uh, I wasn't on very good terms with Ayn Rand after that. And uh, some years passed. And then in, I think, September of 1957, Atlas Shrugged came out. Mm-hmm. And we were all very eager to read Atlas. And it was uh, really quite an experience. I remember uh, reading it, I think, in the course of three days. Wow. Uh, stopping only to, uh, to eat and go to the bathroom. Essentially, that was it. And uh, Rothbard and I were reading it at the same time. I think I was like 100 pages ahead of him or something. And we were both having pretty much identical reactions to the book. Uh, so uh, he arranged for all of us to meet Ayn Rand again. Mm-hmm. And we were all swept away by it. Uh, I thought uh, I'd be out of a job uh, within six weeks after its appearance because I thought whoever read it would e- either be converted or hospitalized. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, of course, it didn't work out that way. Can I stop you? Though? So, sure. I mean, that is interesting, though. But so when you were reading it, like you were aware that, wow, this thing is going to be a big deal. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it was huge. Uh, I thought it would change the world within uh, within less than two months. Okay. okay. So, so, I mean, your your timeline was optimistic, but I mean, you know, for a, a whole generation of people, you know, the, the the cliche of it usually begins with Ayn Rand. That That is what was the introduction to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so there was about a year. We, we, all, we met her again. Mm-hmm. I think in September of '57, and we were at her apartment again, and uh, and we were, we were all uh, friendly. And uh, Rothbard was extremely pro Ayn, and uh, I was, and Rayco, everybody. But then, uh, in uh, within less than a year, I would say, by the summer of '58, uh, factories began to appear. Mm-hmm. And uh, what broke everything up was uh, Rothbard uh, delivered a paper at some conference, I think conducted by Helmut Schuck, maybe I have the name wrong. It was, I think, University of Atlanta, or I'm not sure, I forget. And uh, I thought there were some uh, passages that uh, he should have given credit for to her and also to Barbara Brandon. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I wanted to. I, I thought uh, Rothbard should have given her credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, he adamantly did not think so, and he said, "I thought that uh, she was too hot a potato for him at that time, because uh, I don't think she was very well received among the uh, most right-wing intellectuals, let alone the left-wing intellectuals." Mm-hmm. But I still wanted to be friends with him. Uh, but uh, he threw me out of his apartment. Oh, so, because you over a disagreement on that issue. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, that ended. Mm-hmm. Rayco went with him. Uh, Bob Hessen went with me. Uh, Hamaway went with him. Uh, Leonard Liggio went with him. I don't know if you know him. I mean, I know the names. I don't know a lot of these people personally. Some of my yeah, know. yeah. So that was uh, the end. And obviously, I was never able to have any further economic discussions with Rothbard. After that, so okay, that, uh, uh-huh. that ends 
that ends in uh, July of 58. And it was one year later, in July of 59, that I had, I, I guess the word is epiphany, mm-hmm. where uh, everything came together. Oh, and, in, in, uh, in terms of the, the, the economics yeah. insights? Yeah. Yeah, and that was the, the substance of my uh, doctoral dissertation, which uh, I wrote over the next uh, few years. Uh, it ended up being 640 double space type pages. And that's a, another story. Um, I ran into uh, major trouble with one committee member. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I ended up having to shorten it very greatly. I had a long section, you know, following in the footsteps of Bombabrik, uh, giving a presentation and critique of uh, all other major interest theories. Uh, I ended up having to take that out. In fact, uh, what I did was, I took out what I the, what, the portion that I submitted, whatever I submitted, had been in the original dissertation, with the exception of possibly the first thirty and last thirty pages. And mm-hmm. uh, the committee member who had been giving me all this trouble uh, decided he liked the dissertation better now, but he really had no basis holding up like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, in this period. I decided it was better to use the word profit than originary interest, that they actually simplified things. Uh, I don't know if I had my ideas on Marx uh, in the dissertation or they came later. Uh, okay, so, so yeah, that, that is interesting because I did want to ask you about that. So I, I promise we're going to come back to that, but let me just, one last thing just to, to finish the train of thought on the on the yeah. seminar because and I, yeah. I just it's I've so few people you know we we can ask this stuff to so how did it like was it just um, like would Mises give you guys reading to do and then you'd come back a week later and discuss or how, how did that work? Okay, he would uh, often assign papers to people, and uh, Rothbard and I got most of the assignments or more than anybody else. And then uh, the paper might be discussed the following week. Uh, the format of the seminar was he would talk for about the first hour, and then it would be open uh, to questions and discussion. Okay. And then um, how, was it the same? Was it just anybody could show up, and was it the same group of people time was, in and time out? It was almost always this. I mean, uh, on a given night, uh, you know, one or two people might not show up. Mm-hmm. random absences uh, occasionally someone special would come like Henry Hazlitt would drop in sometimes, not regularly uh, Ayn Rand came once uh, he had uh, one or two people perhaps uh, that he knew in Europe who dropped by uh, so there was a little bit of irregularity and was it by invitation only, or was it the sort of thing where it was known in the community where it was, and if you showed up and as long as you were no, polite? I think you, you, you might approach him and ask. I think it was necessary to ask to be invited. Mm-hmm. I don't think uh, people could just come in off the street. Right, okay. Was it, um, like, were there people there that were hostile to him, or was it mostly people who thought he was great? It was overwhelmingly people who thought he was great. I don't remember anyone hostile. I mean, it may have been uh, 
uh, one or two cases. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, the, and in the papers that he would assign, that would be like old classical things, or would it be more like recent, like something that just got published, the previous issue of something? Oh no, he wasn't assigning journal articles to, to read. He was assigning papers to the students to write. Oh, oh okay. I'm glad we clarified that because I wasn't sure what you meant. All right, great. Yeah. Okay. So that. So how did that work? So like on a week. It was it weekly or am I, did I just invent that? Did you say it was weekly? It was weekly. Okay. Uh, the fall term and the uh, the winter term. Okay. So do you remember just the, the last one I'll ask you, and then, and then I, I do want to get into your original stuff. Do you remember, yeah. like, is there a one you, can you, just to give us an idea of, of, of an assignment that he gave you that you then did? Can you, do you remember off the top of your head? Uh, I have a collection of the papers. Okay. I, don't, I, I would have to search for it. Okay. I know we're talking uh, here, uh, 60 years ago. No, oh, yeah, right. I, I appreciate that. Um, it, it, would, would you then hand, give it to him and he'd read it and talk about it? Or would he give you 10 minutes in the beginning to summarize what you did? Or how did that work? I think copies may have been distributed to everyone. Okay. And so it was it as if like the, the group as a whole was forging into new territory week after week? Is, is that the idea? Well, I don't think we forged into new territory week after week, no. Okay. Uh, that would have been uh, that would have been pretty fantastic. <laughs> okay, um, so th- thank you for, for that, and it's, I love just hearing people explain just some of the stuff that you know you might be taking it for granted. But for those of us who, who never met him, we just don't you just don't know how it would have been. Um, you so never we, met me. No. Oh, too bad. I yeah. I mean, I was born in '76. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> um. So can we, why don't we switch then? So you had, I think a good segue is what you mentioned there, sort of an offhand remark that you originally, you were using the term originary interest, yeah. but then you decided it was just less cumbersome and perhaps easier to communicate to a broader audience to just switch to yeah. using the word profit. Yes. And also I think it's objectively a better choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, given the actual, the facts of what we're dealing with. Now, can you define it exactly what you mean? Because I know people who have taken economics, there's like a distinction between accounting profit versus, you know, entrepreneurial profit. I mean, strictly accounting profit. I'm very strong on accounting profit. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, anytime there's a conflict between economics and accounting, economics should go with accounting. And one of the things this has led me to was a critique of the imputed income and opportunity cost doctrines. I think they're both absolutely absurd. Okay. I came to that view because I was focused on what determines accounting profit. That's the first question. The concept of profit is very simple. It's the excess of sales over costs. Mm -hmm. Now, the question that hardly anyone has ever dealt with is where does this excess come from? What makes it possible? Now, one easy explanation would be an increase in quantity of money. I mean, if you just think profit is sales minus cost, after the quantity of money is growing over time, then spending is going to grow over time. And the sales revenues in the future will be greater than they would have been to the extent that money and spending have increased. Now, 
the expenditures that constitute the cost already took place. They can't be retroactively changed. So the increase in the quantity of money and volume of spending is operating by itself to add a positive component to the accounting rate of profit. That, that seems practically self-evident to me. Mm-hmm. Let, let me just stop to make sure the listeners are getting this. Um, okay. So you're saying like, again, profit here, like for so folks, again, if you took a regular economics class and they tried to get you to, you know, attribute various components to things, what George is, is saying is no, no, no. Like think of it very simply at first in terms of standard accounting that if you spend whatever a thousand dollars on the fact, you know, you hired some workers, you bought some raw materials, you mixed them together and then you had a product and then you down the road, you sell it for 1100 the profit there is 100 because your revenues right. were a hundred dollars more than your expenses. Right. Now I hope I'll be able to hold all this and not uh, lose it in the middle. Yep. But uh, like I'm thinking of how Sam Wilson treats this subject, which is very typical. Uh, imagine it ridicules the accountant. Mm-hmm. Imagine your, your accountant tells you you've made a profit of a hundred thousand dollars this year. And you say, wow, great. And then Samuelson chimes in and he says, no, you're an unprofitable loser. Why? Because you could have invested the capital in your enterprise in some other outfit and made uh, $60,000 in interest. You could have gone to work for some other outfit and uh, made a salary of $50,000. So you've lost $10,000. You have these opportunity costs of 60 plus 50, and your accounting profit is 100 you're minus 10,000. You have a loss of 10,000. But meanwhile, you've taken some luxurious vacations. Uh, you've consumed, let's imagine, $80,000 during the year, and you've added $20,000 to your net worth. Now, if in reality you had consumed 80,000 and had a loss of 10,000, well, what would have happened to your net worth? Your net worth would have been minus 10. If you had had a loss of, of 10000 your net worth would have been minus 10. Mm-hmm. And you, you, your income, though, was 100. Now, here you are, you've got 20 more uh, net worth. That's the actual increase in net worth. How do we reconcile the uh, 80000 of consumption that you have plus 20000 increase in net worth with a loss of 10 well, the way they do it is they say, no, your, your income was not just a loss of 10000 You earned the 60000 in interest that you didn't earn and the 50000 in wages that you didn't earn. So your actual income was 110000 plus a loss of 10000 You have 110000 of income you never had and a loss of 10000 that you never had. And then we get back to reality. So, like, so twisted. I, I may have lost people. I need to be in a little better focus. I don't know if you're able to follow me clearly. Yeah, let me let me try to restate that. So your your numbers all worked. So that was good. If you just made that up on the spot, you you did <laughs> you did hold all the numbers together. So you're saying you, you have an enterprise and you invest some of your own capital in it, and of course your labor time. You know, you're running right. a business like a restaurant, let's say. So you had to use some of your own money to go buy the raw ingredients for the food. Right. And then you're at the restaurant working, you know, 12 hour days or whatever all year. Okay. And when all is said and done, your accountant tells you, hey, you had a hundred thousand dollars more in revenue from your customers than you spent. 
in terms of buying right. the ingredients and paying the rent on the building and your utilities. So you right. have an accounting profit of $100,000. And you're like, oh, that's good. I, I, and you're saying that the, the standard modern economics, the way they try to like have different components and attribute it to things, is somebody yeah. like Paul Samuelson would say, well, no, that's not enough information. What if it turns out that actually the money... Uh -huh the money you spent on those ingredients and paying the rent on your building for the restaurant. If instead, you know, you, you didn't have your restaurant. Instead, you invested that out in the bond market. You could have yeah. earned $50,000, let's say, with the same type of risk, or maybe you put in the stock market for the same type of risk that you were in the restaurant industry. And then instead of you cutting up vegetables and greeting customers and cooking stuff in the kitchen and running around, if it, you had worked for somebody else, they would have paid you, let's say, 60000 And so there, right. for the same amount of your inputs over the, at the end of the year, you could have had $110,000 when all was said and done. And so there's a sense in which you actually lost $10,000 in your restaurant this year. Right. But meanwhile, I've gone through the year consuming 80000 and I've added 20000 to my bank account. Now, if in fact I had had a consumption of 80000 and a loss of 10,000, my net worth would be minus 90,000. 10,000 on the loss and 80,000 on the consumption. You just think if you made no income, let alone a loss, mm -hmm. whatever you consumed would be a subtraction from your net worth. Right. So how do they reconcile their implication that you've had a decline in net worth of 90,000, 80 of consumption plus 10 of loss, with the fact that you have a gain of 20 in your net worth. Well, the way they reconcile it is, they say, well, you remember that uh, interest income that you didn't earn, that we criticized you for not earning? Well, you earned it, you earned it. And the wages that you didn't earn and that we criticized you for being too foolish not to earn, you earned that too. So what they're saying is, you earned 60,000 of wages you didn't earn and 50,000 of interest you didn't earn or vice versa. And had a loss of 10000 that you didn't have. So they're buried in a world of fiction when the simple reality is you had a profit of 100000 George, is it, could we isolate and, and get to this distinction they're making and that you think is silly um, more quickly just by saying, you know, let's say you're, you're out walking in the woods and you find a car that's been abandoned and, you know, it's, it's in perfect condition and then, you know, no one's claiming it. So it's legally given to, to you and then you go and sell it for a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. But actually you sold it to your brother-in-law for a hundred thousand. You could have sold it on the open market for 110. And so you're right. thinking, wow, today I found that car and sold it. I'm a hundred thousand dollars richer. And Samuelson's right. going to say, no, you just lost 10,000 because you should have sold it for 110 or you could have. I say you've, you've gained a hundred thousand. Mm -hmm. You might have gained 110000 but the fact that you might have gained more doesn't mean you had a loss. An analogy right. I use is, mm -hmm. let's say uh, you marry a very, very good-looking woman, but you might have married a fabulous beauty. <laughs> Does that make the one you married ugly? Now then, when you look at her and you see, well, she's not ugly, she's really quite attractive. Well, Samuelson would say, well, yeah, but that's because she's had plastic surgery. <laughs> okay. It, uh, yes. So I'm, I'm curious, do you have, 
so how is that? I think maybe I'm answering, you answered the question already because I was going to ask you, is it, is it that you think that those considerations are relevant? In other words, is there a role for the economist to say to the restaurant owner, hey, the mere fact that you're earning accounting profits doesn't necessarily mean you're using your resources in the, the most lucrative outlets and have you considered such and such? Like, do, do you think that that's... Mm-hmm. You could ask that and you could explain very simply, you know, maybe you'd earn more overall if instead of uh, earning an accounting profit, uh, you earned uh, interest and uh, wages instead. Mm-hmm. But because you could have earned more doesn't mean you had a loss. Right, right. I mean, but that standard, everyone is losing all the time. Let's imagine we have a, a company with a, a great research department, and they're introducing a new product that gives them a 40% annual rate of return. Well, suppose they have, their research department is so good, they could have had another product that would have given them 39%. Well, what's their profit? Is it 40% or 1%? Right, yep. I, I see the the problems you get into when you start going that down that path. And also, like you're saying, since we technically don't know, and presumably there are, always exists some superior thing, if only we had had better foresight, it is this yeah. weird situation where we know, oh, we're always losing, we just don't know by how much. Right. Life is a total loss all the time. Yeah, that is, that is odd. Um, well, okay, so, go ahead. Yeah, plus there are bigger issues than this, and that is the fact that the original primary income in the economic system is profit, not wages. I think the starting point of Marxism and class conflict, the whole bit, uh, there are these eight paragraphs in Adam Smith's chapter on wages in The Wealth of Nations. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you call them. I assume you read them. But um, it's where he starts off... uh, uh, the original recompense of labor, uh, the, produ- the produce of labor is the original recompense of labor. Uh, y- that. Y- yes, that does sound, f- and, and just so the listeners, um, just to prime them. So everybody, Karl Marx is typically considered a classical economist. And also everybody I think knows that Marx is associated with the labor theory of value, but so were... <laughs> The classical economists, like even the you know the, the alleged uh, you know champions of the free market, and so that's partly what what your George is getting into here. But the, the labor theory of value, as propounded by the classical economists, was very very different. Uh, like Ricardo is very well developed on the question of time. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, he says somewhere, uh, if he had to write his uh, book over again, he'd say there were two fundamental determinants of relative value. Uh, relative quantity of labor and the relative periods of time it takes for goods to to get to market, mm-hmm. and they have okay. also recognized they recognize scarcity. Uh, and this is something I go into exhaustively in capitalism. The classical economists on the labor theory of value. Uh, you could get rid of whatever is bad in them without uh, without destroying. Them. Uh, but well, right. And uh, yeah, just to make sure, yeah, that's a good clarification. Certainly the, what people think of as the crude version of Marxist labor theory value is not, when you read what they're saying, in particular, like even in the hands of um, like, uh, like a, a, a J.B. Say, I believe, like it's, it doesn't sound crazy, even though, you know, modern right, well, say- economists have been grown up to think, oh yeah, the labor theory of value, that's stupid. 
Like when you read yeah. the, the classicals talking about it, you can see where they're coming from. Right. And the, the iron law of wages is very different. Mar Marx's view on the iron law of wages is the capitalists arbitrary, arbitrarily pay the workers minimum subsistence wages, and that's it. The classical economists uh, were concerned about uh, population increasing relative to land and uh, diminishing returns resulting and the need to resort to land of ever inferior quality. And so they thought there is a tendency of wages towards subsistence, not because the capitalists arbitrarily put, the, put wages there, but because of the operation of the law of diminishing returns. And they mm -hmm. recognized it didn't have to be that way. There could be prolonged periods where uh, wages continued rising. I mean, if you think of when they were writing, like Ricardo was, died in 1823, how much of a historical record did they have of economic progress? You know, so it's not surprising mm -hmm. that they would think that subsistence is the natural level of wages. That's the right. way it was in all of history before. Right. Okay, so I I sort of interrupted you before just to make sure the listener knew knew the context. So you you were saying not just Karl Marx, but even Adam Smith has this idea that wages are like the original source or form of income, and and you're challenging that. Yeah. Now Marx gets it from Smith. Smith right. is the one really responsible, and uh, he sets it up. He, he imagines there's an original state of affairs where manual workers are producing and selling products, and he thinks their entire income is wages. He says they have neither landlord nor master to share with them. But then the uh, private property and land develops. The landlord demands a share of what the labor, of what the worker produces, and then capital is accumulated, and the capitalist demands another deduction from what originally was wages, namely his profit. And he explicitly names profit as a deduction from wages. Now, one of the things I'm saying is that if we analyze what the workers were doing, in, if there ever were this early and rude state of society, this original state of things, if we've got manual workers producing and selling products, the money they're taking in for their products is not wages. A wage is money paid in exchange for the performance of labor. This is money paid in exchange for loaves of bread, pairs of shoes, whatever. That money is sales revenues, not wages. Now, these workers have not acted capitalistically. A capitalist, according both to Smith and Marx, is someone who buys for the sake of subsequently selling. These workers are not doing that. There are no capitalists. There's no buying for the sake of selling, which means that while there's sales revenues, there's no accounting cost. There's sales revenues plus zero accounting costs, which means the entire sales proceeds are profit. Then when the capitalists appear on the scene and start making expenditures for labor and capital goods, costs of production come into being and reduce the proportion of sales revenues that is profit. Capitalists are not responsible for the phenomenon of profit. They're responsible for the reduction in its relative size. And they're responsible for reduction in the rate of profit, because if we had no capitalists, we'd not only have 100% of sales being profit, but there'd be zero money capital invested. There'd be no property, plant, and equipment account, no inventory work in progress account. So we'd have an infinite rate of profit. And the more capitalistic the economy becomes, 
the lower does the rate of profit become and the lower do profit margins become and higher wages become relative to sales and profits. Okay, so this is great stuff because it, you know, number one, if you're right, then this is a cleaner way of analyzing things that, you know, more, more straightforward, just lines up with common sense. And number well, thank two, you. Thank you. and I said, if, you know, <laughs> and then two, it's obviously, it, it pulls the rug out from Marxism for the reason, you know, and, and so let me just, let me just paraphrase to make sure I'm getting what, what your argument is. So you're, you're saying there's sort of a rhetoric, I don't want to say rhetorical trick, like maybe I'm, I don't think he realized he was doing it, but you're saying Adam Smith we, we know where we want to go with the analysis, that, that Smith knows, oh, in the modern world, when he was writing, you've got laborers, you've got landowners, you've got capitalists, and they earn wages, rent, and interest, or profit, um, yeah. would have been the terms they would have used. And so then Smith is trying to simplify it, and he says, okay, let's first imagine, let, you know, let's get rid of the landowner, and let's get rid of the capitalist, and just have the the worker. And yeah. and so if, there, if there's, you know, the worker's not, if he doesn't have to, um, you know, obtain the services of the of land or um, capital, then Smith is thinking, oh, so he's directly just so everything's wages. But your point yeah. is, no, that's not how it works because there's no employer in that scenario, and it's the employer who would yeah. pay wages. And so, if it's like workers or, or, or individuals, let's say, who are just directly providing like massage services, because I'm trying to think of something that doesn't require land or capital. So yeah. just with their bare hands, yeah. they go up to the customers, you know, to the public and say, hey, for a, you know, a, a, a silver coin, you know, I'll give you a back massage. And some people yeah. do it. And so Adam Smith wants to classify that as 100% wages. But your point is, no, the public is not buying labor service. They're buying a massage. That's what they're, that's what they're paying for. And so that's sales revenue, just as surely as if a big company that was a massage studio, you know, had customers come in and pay somebody at the desk and they put yeah. put it in the cash rate, that would clearly be sales revenue. And then out of that, they would pay a wage to the massage therapist. So the point is by getting rid of the all the other people involved, what you've isolated is not wage payments, you've isolated sales receipts. Yeah. Is what, is what I take you to be saying. Yeah, when you're selling any kind of commodity, when you're selling your labor services, I think you're selling your readiness to do as instructed by the employer. Mm -hmm. If you're offering a specific service, and I, I focus um, primarily on material goods because I think mm -hmm. it's clearer there. Right. Uh, but if you're selling a specific service, uh, I think the concept of sales revenues applies there too. But uh, certainly, uh, Smith and Marx are talking constantly about commodities. And, um, you know, Marx distinguishes like Smith. Smith had the early and rude state of society. Mm -hmm. Marx has what he calls simple circulation. Have, have you read much of Marx? Uh, just on the the profits determination stuff. So, so no, the, what you're what you're talking about doesn't sound familiar to me. Okay, well, simple circulation. He des describes that as CMC. A worker produces a commodity C, sells it for money M and then uses the money to buy other commodities, C, CMC. Mm -hmm. He says there's no exploitation there. It's simple right. circulation. There are no capitalists. The problems begin when we get capitalist circulation. That's MCM, an outlay of money for the purpose of producing commodities which are to be sold for more money. 
MCM. And mm-hmm. that's where profit comes in, according to Marx. But in reality, DMC is pure profit. MCM reduces the proportion of profit. We can look, Marx's uh, sequence is helpful in a way. Uh, mm-hmm. you, can, you can describe, it's the concept, the economic degree of capitalism. A zero economic degree of capitalism is no money is spent capitalistically at all. Right. You have sales revenues, no expenditure at all to earn the sales revenues. So that's a zero economic degree of capitalism. Okay, today, can I try it? Yep, go, sorry, go ahead. Today, we may have an economic degree of capitalism of 0.9 or 0.95. 95 cents of every dollar of sales revenues is preceded uh, every dollar of sales revenues is preceded by 90 or 95 cents of expenditures for means of production. Right. Let me, I think I think I thought, I've thought of a better way to do it, George, just to clarify, because I, yeah. I, I totally get what you're saying, but I, my example may have been unhelpful because it was too direct because I used massage services. And the reason yeah. I did that is I didn't want there to be a scarce means of input from land factors that then would require a landlord um, for rental payment. But how about this one? There's um, a bunch of rocks just sitting around and and there's, there's so many that they're, they're free. Like nobody cares. They're, they're not useful. You know, they're not scarce, but there are certain individuals who are talented artistically. They can pick up the rocks and arrange them in a certain way for like a sculpture. Like maybe they get clay off the ground too. And so they can make sculptures and then they sell the sculptures to the public. Right. But they don't have to. They don't have to pay anybody for the rocks or the clay because those are, you know, they're they're free. They're abundant enough that they have no market price. So right. Adam Smith would say, "Oh, those that those payments are 100 percent wages," and you would say, "No, they're not. The public is not buying labor. They're buying sculptures, and so right. those things are 100 percent profit, or not even 100 percent. You'd say an infinite." Like those things are totally profit, but you say, what's the rate of profit since there was no original expenditure? It's an infinite rate yeah. of return. Do I have the, your the, view right? Yes. The rate of profit on capital is infinite. Profit margins are 100%. Right. Okay. Now, as a matter of fact, you may be interested to know, Adam Smith had exactly this case in mind. Uh, he refers to uh, these rocks you're thinking of as scotch pebbles. And he says uh in some areas of Scotland, there are poor people who gather up these things known as Scotch pebbles and sell them. Mm-hmm. And he's saying uh, that the whole thing is wages, but it isn't. It's all profit. It's sales revenue and profit. Okay. And so if the listener can understand what you're doing with that move, and I think prima facie, that's very plausible, and that, that does sound correct. Um, so one thing is, George, you're saying now that that famous sort of saying from John or, or assertion from John Stuart Mill, um, where, and just to remind the listener, he says the demand for commodities is not demand for labor. And yeah. I know Hayek has used that in other contexts and whatever. So this is something that Austrians, we've heard of this. And now in light of this discussion from you, George, that takes on a whole new light or a whole new meaning. Yes, I think so. Okay. So that, I think the listener gets that. And so now, again, just to make sure they're seeing the importance of this, you can see how, if no, if the original condition is everything, all revenues are profit and the rate of return is infinite. Now, when you introduce, when you introduce the more familiar arrangement where it's not someone just directly creating things and giving them to the public 
but instead you have to buy inputs from like a, a landowner, like natural resources, and maybe um, the services of capital. Yeah. If obviously there's only one way that can go. If it starts out at infinite, it's got to be it's going to be lo- lower the rate of return. And so you're right. saying paradoxically, the introduction of this the capitalist as a separate person reduces the rate of profit. Yes. Yes. Now, also, let me interject one other point. It's not nearly as big as this one, but it's relevant. Um, you know, Smith also is attacking uh, private ownership of land implicitly. He's mm-hmm. not as well known for that. But um, one of the points I make is that private ownership of land operates to hold down land rent. You see, almost all economists think uh, land rent is something uh, totally unearned and uh, the landlord just uh, appropriates the property. He's got this unearned income. In reality, to the extent that land is privately owned and the landowners have respect for their individual rights, they're introducing improvements in production and they're, they're bringing new types of land in that previously couldn't be used. They're improving the output from the types already in use. So that's reducing the price of the products and operating to reduce land rent. The fact that we have private ownership of land works to reduce land rent by making the products of land more abundant. Okay, you said that clearly. Why don't, but that's an important point. Why don't we, let's just do that again though. Why Why would this, because it's probably surprising people. Why would Adam Smith, why would his his views suggest that private ownership of land makes it more expensive? Well, he describes the landlords as uh, like all other men who love to reap where they have never sowed. Okay. So they're they're not contributing anything. All they're doing is acting as gatekeepers to like impose scarcity. They're taking deductions. Both both the landlords and the capitalists, Mm -hmm. according to Smith, are Mm -hmm. deducting part of what originally, naturally, and rightfully should go to the wage earner as wages. Okay. And then you're, you're saying, no, the correct way to look at the situation is what? The correct way with respect to land is the fact that we have private ownership of land raises the productivity of land and does so progressively, which operates to hold down land rent, to keep land rent within check. But the most recent example is fracking. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you have a powerful incentive of profit if you could start using shale rock commercially, that greatly enlarged the, uh, the supply of, of usable, accessible petroleum resources, and it's uh, held, held the price of oil down. It's reduced uh, the land rent uh, derived by the Saudis, the mining rent derived by the Saudis. Mm-hmm. So, um, let me ask you, this. Are, you are you saying... So, so one issue is, but I want to know, is this the thing you just put your finger on or are you saying something that's a different consideration? Are you saying humans' knowledge of what land or more broadly natural resources, like where they exist, where they're located and how they could be deployed to satisfy human needs that without having the institution of private property, people don't have the incentive to go find that out and so we wouldn't know? Or are you saying something beyond that? Well, that's at least partly what I'm saying. You see, we could really tie it in to Menger's uh, discussion of goods. You know how uh, uh, he lists a number of requirements for a thing to be a good? Mm-hmm. And one of them is uh, knowledge of their useful properties and uh, 
sufficient power of command over them to direct them to the satisfaction of human needs. Well, this relates to the whole issue of uh, the the, uh, availability of natural resources. You know, people keep worrying, uh, we have to have everything produced sustainably or we'll just run out. Now, the reality is nature's contribution to natural resources is not iron mines or oil fields. It's all the matter and energy in the universe. That's nature's contribution to natural resources. And certainly, as the barest minimum, the total mass of the Earth and the solar system. Mm -hmm. And like the Earth itself represents uh, 268 billion cubic miles of solidly packed chemical elements and compounds. And the question is, what fraction of that can we get at and devote to our ends and do it economically without having to expend an inordinate amount of labor? Well, that supply is indefinitely enlargeable, especially if we could look at it as the whole universe. Right. And it's the profit motive, private ownership of the means of production, the desire to, to increase your profits and build your capital, that's what fuels the progressive enlargement of the fraction of nature that's economically usable and holds down uh, the prices of natural resources, of, of produced natural resources. Yeah. Um, just as a specific illustration of that, and I, I know you know this stuff, George, but just for the listener, who this is new, new material for them. Yeah. Um, I know in the early 1980s, if you calculated what were the known reserves of oil, like crude oil, yeah, and then you, you know, so you knew how many barrels you know people knew about, and then you looked at the current rates of usage, people could say yeah. something like, "Oh, we have about 30 years left of oil," and so yeah. that's why people are saying, "Whoa, we better you know wean ourselves off of our dependence on oil because we've only got 30 years left." Yeah. And then if you go to you know to the year 2010 when technically Earth should have been you know just about burning up that last drop and say how many years of oil, it was more than 30 years worth. And so yeah. obviously what's happening is when they talk about how much oil do we know of, it, it only pays oil companies to go out and find a certain amount. And then once they you know have pushed back the horizon, they don't keep spending money to go look for it. And it's only when world prices change that they, that they have the incentive to go locate more. Yeah, that's a good, good point. Um, okay, uh, can you go a little bit longer, George? Sure. Can, sure, okay, yes, yeah, because I, I know you sent me some more of these. Um, so I, I was really fascinated by this point, the idea that the businessmen and the capitalists are the primary producers while their employees are merely their helpers. And you made an analogy right. to uh, Christopher Columbus. So do you want to spell that one out? Yes, by all means. Okay. Unfortunately, Columbus is a, another issue in its own right. <laughs> <laughs> and this applies in every area outside of material production, it seems. Like when historians uh, talk about the, the Battle of Austerlitz, I don't know if you're familiar with it, they credit Napoleon with the victory. Mm-hmm. And I use three examples, actually. First, I use Columbus. We say Columbus discovered America, not the members of his crew. Napoleon uh, won the Battle of Austerlitz. Uh, we talk about the president's foreign policy, not the foreign policy of the embassy employees. Well, what, what's the principle um, operative in these three cases, which leads us to attribute this huge result uh, to a single person? And it's it's clearly that 
there's somebody who has people acting under his or her commands and that you attribute it to the leader. Exactly. We attribute the product to whoever supplied the guiding, directing intelligence at the highest level. And that's these three people. Now, in the realm of material production, that's people like Ford and Rockefeller. We, we should be attributing the products, Bezos, uh, I can't even remember his name now. Who's the president of uh, Microsoft? Bill Gates? Gates, yeah. I don't know how I could forget that. All right. So these guys slide the guiding, directing intelligence at the highest level. So fundamentally, the product is their product. Right. And yet the conventional view is that, oh, the workers are the one who actually make the product. And then the managers and particularly the capitalists just skim off the top of what other people made. And at the same time, they complain all the time that the workers are alienated from the product. They don't see the big picture. They don't uh, know how one step fits with another. Oh, yeah. They're just a cog in the machine. Yeah. So how does the product get there? Who's guiding and directing the process? They think it's automatic. What's interesting, George, is that I think the one example where people are more forgiving is Steve Jobs with, you know, like the iPhone and things. Like, I think there, even a lot of leftists do at least have a grudging recognition that the guy leading Apple, you know, had this vision and that, you know... And that the, yeah, clearly, like the people on the assembly line, they might think, oh, they should have gotten paid more or whatever. But I think yeah. there, there is this sense that he created new things and he wasn't just a paper pusher. Yeah, right. Now, uh, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, Adam Smith briefly toyed with the idea. Uh, he asked uh, whether profits uh, could be a, an income uh, paid for the labor of inspection and direction. Uh, that, those were his terms, his words. And he rejected the idea because uh, uh, profit varied with the magnitude of the capital invested. And he thought in order for something to be a genuine labor income, or at least this is what he said in this uh, portion of his book, uh, profits would have to vary with the labor of, uh, of the workers, not with, uh, with their special labor of inspection and direction, but the physical quantity of labor. Now, okay, let me hang on, George. Let me just make sure the listener, because that's a subtle point. So one way of reconciling all this is one might have supposed, oh yeah, if if what the profit really is is the return to the oversight labor services of the of the founder of the company, then you know, in a sense, he's getting paid a, a high salary. But Adam Smith rejected that. You're saying because then. The, the the total profit of the firm, you know, what's left over after the workers are paid and so on, would be proportional to the number of hours that the CEO or whoever, you know, puts into it. And clearly that's not, that the profit is is proportional to how much capital is invested. Right. So that was his argument. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, one of the points I make is that that's true of wages too. Uh, you know, imagine we have uh, three workers one of whom is uh, digging a hole with his bare hands, another uses a conventional shovel, and a third uses a steam shovel. Now, equal quantities of labor will produce radically unequal results because of the uh, different uh, equipment or lack of equipment employed. But who do we attribute the product to in all three cases? 
we have we have one guy digging a hole with his bare hands. He digs a very tiny hole. We have someone mm-hmm. else using a steam shovel. He digs an enormous hole. Who digs the hole in both cases? Oh, we said the worker dug it. Yeah, the worker digs it. Why is it the worker? Because in this instance, he's the one supplying the guiding, directing intelligence through the equipment or lack of equipment. Right. Okay. Now, it's the same. Uh, if, if you have more capital, if you're in control of more capital, you're capable of producing more. Like, suppose uh, you have a, a, a better idea for running a shoe store. If you only own one shoe store, you can only apply your idea to that one shoe store. But if you own a whole chain, you can apply it to the whole chain. So we should expect profits to vary with the magnitude of capital invested. Because you're applying it's the, the labor, the, the labor of, of capitalists in, a, in an advanced economy is no longer very much manual labor, though it is some. It's mainly a, an intellectual labor. Uh, providing guiding, directing intelligence. And so the, the output should vary uh, with the, the means that they employ. Uh, more capital means you can apply your ideas on a bigger scale. You can employ more helpers. You can buy more and better equipment and, and materials. Mm-hmm. So Now, uh, yeah. r- remind me, George, in your framework, how does it... Um, so like the the founder of the company... He's uh, is the profit like to the extent that more capital is involved, and he turns to outside investors, yeah. And then he has to, and he has to give them you know interest payments annually as a return on their right. investment. How do, right. is that? How do you, how do you handle that in your framework? Okay, now many people I have to anticipate the objection. Uh, there's exploitation. These uh, passive capitalists who haven't originated the product or done a hell of a lot. Uh, in its development, they're collecting interest or dividends. Mm-hmm. Uh, if this were, if this represented the exploitation of labor, whose labor would would it be that was exploited? Uh, the capitalists. Yeah, it would be. <laughs> so now, who would be? Who are the passive capitalists who literally don't know anything? They don't know what they're doing with their capital. They are very lucky they have the capital, they inherited it. Now, I think a a big instance of this would be widows and orphans. Now, Mm -hmm. widows and orphans have inherited capital. Are they exploiting Ford and Rockefeller? No. No. It can't be an exploitation anyway, because Ford and Rockefeller are gaining by paying dividends and interest to the passive capitalists. They actually gain by it, so they're not being exploited. They're able to use the capital on which they're paying interest or dividends to earn profits that are greater than the interest and dividends they have to pay. So they can, they benefit. Can I ask? Um, and so and so for the, I I know we're just kind of restating things, but again, just because it's such a critical issue. So the the way like a Marxist would look at that or something is say, no, it's the people. I mean, give me a break. It's the people in the factory with their hands. Who are making the cars? Henry Ford sitting in his office, it's air conditioned, and some outside passive investor who's just getting dividends every quarter. That person's not making a car. That person doesn't even know how to make a car. So when you say who made the cars, it's the people in the factory. So clearly, since they're not getting paid the full value of the cars being produced, 
they must be exploited. So how do you deal with that kind of perspective? All right. They're performing particular uh, isolated steps. Uh, the arrangement of the steps was all put together by Ford. Ford brought in the outside capital. Ford provided the equipment with which they're working. He's determined what work they're doing, how they do it, the extent to which they do it. So it's fundamentally Ford's product, not theirs. They're Ford's helpers. And we could mm -hmm. say the, uh, the passive capitalists, they too are Ford's helpers, but they're helping with the contribution of their capital. Now, let me just add in here, uh, it, there need not be any uh, truly passive capitalists. It, would, it is possible that uh, all income connected with capital is fully earned. I'm not saying it is, but it could be. And that depends on the amount of work that the investors put in. But there's no limit to how much research you can put in in making stock and bond investments. I, I would say if you've spent months researching uh, an industry and the different companies in it, and you know who's positioned to benefit from this or lose from that, you earn whatever you make. What, what else could people do to earn the money? They're applying their labor to get a result. Now, in many cases, it isn't that way. You have widows and orphans collecting dividend and interest checks, and they're not doing anything really to earn the money. But it's not hurting anyone. It's benefiting uh, Ford, and it's benefiting the guys on the assembly line, and it's benefiting the buyers of the cars and all the other vehicles. And also, it's similar to the thing with Samuelson, where if they're earning a return, just because they might earn a higher return if they had done more research, that's still, they're still getting a return. They're still doing something productive with their, with their capital. Yeah, the argument is that in giving it to, to Ford to use, mm -hmm. they're doing something productive. Now, I mean, if they gave it to a Bernie Madoff, it would be a different story. Right. Let me ask you this, George, on that, yeah. like, is it a, is it a, a useful way to think about it? Because it's, I think, with with intangible money flows, sometimes people lose sight of it. Is it helpful to think just in terms of if the if the the so-called passive investors, if they actually had some like tools, for example, like 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 hammers and or drill presses, things like that, and they were just trying to determine which factories to to lend them to. Well, it, does, does that help isolate it in terms of like a classical framework? Because clearly then you could see why they're definitely contributing because the workers showing up to work, if they had to work with their bare hands, not too many cars would get produced. Right. But what they are doing, essentially what you're saying, because uh, when they decide which firms will get money, they're putting the firm in the position of buying all kinds of equipment and right. material and so forth. So they are determining. Uh, which uh, branches of the economy will uh, be equipped uh, better, and which uh, which less? Yeah, right, right, and then and then clearly in that case, you can see why it's not exploitation. The fact that workers who show up at a factory where there's forklifts and assembly lines and so on, that all the cars getting produced are not merely due to their labor input, since those other things are definitely necessary. Right, and they never thought of the car on their own. I mean, I try to uh, visualize this. Let's say we have a, a factory that employs a thousand people. I don't know in how many subspecializations. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe 
let's say there's just a hundred different distinct jobs in the factory. But what did they do? They ran into one another on the subway or at a party and they decided, well, I'll do this, you do that, and he does the third thing. How did they set all this up? Right. And another way of seeing it, I think Bumbavark has arguments like this too, George, you may remember, where okay, you know, if, if Marx is right and all these workers in the, in the auto factory are being exploited by Ford, they can all just leave. They can all just go to an empty field somewhere and make their own cars and then keep 100% of the revenue. Yeah, well, they wouldn't even be, they wouldn't even be able to do that. <laughs> but I, well, right. I mean, that just, that just shows how it's not merely the, the workers' labor because, yeah, they obviously couldn't do that. As a matter of fact, I remember once I was explaining Bob Bavrick's theory to Ayn Rand. And this is before, I think it must have been before I had my own. And she was uh, not very receptive to it because uh, her reaction was, it's the businessman. She already saw the businessman should have a primary credit or indicated mm-hmm. that. And Bombavik was uh, sort of casting him aside. Oh, that is, okay. That is interesting. Yeah. But, yeah, because there, there are passages, I, mean, I know you know this, where Bombavik sort of takes Mark's you know, like the exploitation theory and just, and, and, and he admits, he said, yes, I do agree. The worker should get the full value of his product, but then he, but then he brings in the time element and shows how. Right. I, I thought that was ingenious. It, it is yeah. ingenious. Mm-hmm. That reminds me, you wrote somewhere, I think it was the foreword to one of Bombavik's essays where you said Mises called him the Sphinx. Do you remember writing that? I remember Mises using that word. Uh, and uh, he may have said uh, Paul Bobrick, like worked continuously throughout the week with the exception of attending a concert on a Sunday afternoon. And, and so what, what was Mises' opinion? Like, did Mises feel like Bombavik was a greater economist than he was? Like, did he ever talk like that or you don't know? I think clearly Mises was the greater economist than Bombavik. Uh, I mean, Bombavik is fantastic. He's, um, I would say he's definitely second in the Austrian school. But what distinguishes Mises is Mises is the first man in the history of the world to try to develop a comprehensive, in-depth defense of capitalism. I mean, lots of people have written very good books on particular aspects of things. You know, Mm -hmm. we have Bakhtiat, Hazlitt, Obaver, Menger. But Mises is the first man to put it all together, to have an answer in-depth, clear Convincing answer, almost always, mm-hmm. uh, in defense of capitalism. And no one else ever did this. And that, that's why I think Mises was really the greatest man of the 20th century. I certainly, I think he's the greatest economist. It's just, um, it, but just to be clear, I wasn't asking, because I agree with you, George, that Mises was a better economist than Bombarek. But I'm asking, did, did Mises, do you think he knew that? Or did he, or do you, did he when he talked to Bombarek? Because the only reason I'm asking you is, because the way you were, the thing I read from you where you were saying Mises referred to Bombavik is, is the Sphinx, like he was sort of this mysterious intellect that you couldn't really n- always know what was going on in, inside of his mind. And I, I wondered if Mises was, oh, you know. I, I never thought of it in th- those terms. Okay. I'd like to find out where I use the word. I don't, I know, I know I've heard that word. Mises used it in reference to Bombavik. It, it was, um, you wrote the, introduction to an essay by Bombavik on like value and cost or something. Oh yeah. That's I translated that. Yeah. It would have to oh, be. Okay. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So you wrote the, the intro and yeah, you translate it. Okay. Um, yeah. 
I just want to give you the the floor here and as much time again, obviously you've you've already contributed an hour and a half here, so it's up to you. But can you explain to us your 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 massive treatise capitalism and like what led you to do that? And clearly, yeah. you know, you just credited Mises, but you felt like you, you needed to write this as well. Yeah. Well, what it was was I mentioned the questions I had, like a Mises view on the negative price premium, which I, I couldn't agree with. And uh, Rothbard's belief that you needed uh, a continual decline in the rate of profit in order to have a continuing economic progress, and uh, I'm sure there were there were other issues. And uh, I worked out an example. Uh, I, I developed a very complicated example showing the existence of capital accumulation uh, without a fall in the rate of profit. I had the sales revenues, the costs, the quantity produced. So I could track everything. Mm-hmm. And I, I arrived at that, I think, in the spring of 1958. Uh, and, but then in the summer of 59, uh, before I made my discoveries, I read uh, Hazlitt's uh, The Failure of the New Economics and his long quotation from John Stuart Mill, which made everything come together. And that was centering on this proposition uh, demand for commodities is not demand for labor. Now, what makes that so important is it made clear, at least in my mind, how it can that uh, sales revenues regularly and consistently exceed costs of production. How it is mm-hmm. that more money is regularly and consistently being spent to buy the products of business than business is spending uh, in producing the products. And that's where Mill's proposition came in. Because, just think about this, whatever business firms spend in buying capital goods is to the exact same extent sales revenues to the sellers of the capital goods, right? Right. And to whatever extent business firms pay wages, we can assume the wage earners, at least as our initial assumption, consume the wages. Can you say that again? To whatever extent business firms pay wages, Right. We assume, at least provisionally, that the wage earners spend the wages in buying consumers' goods. Okay. Okay. Now, notice what's the relationship, the implied relationship here between sales and costs? Sales have to be higher unless uh, unless the workers absorb the full uh, revenue. No, wait a minute. Let's put in numbers. Okay. Let's suppose business firms are spending 500 units of money every year to buy materials and machinery and goods at wholesale. What does that mm-hmm. imply about sales revenues? Uh, I'm not in sure econo- where you're going with it. In the economic system as a whole. Like if General Motors spends a billion dollars buying steel from U.S. Steel, mm-hmm. what's U.S. Steel's sales revenues at least so far? A billion. A billion. And DM mm-hmm. is a billion of spending for capital goods. Now, suppose DM spends another billion in paying wages, and the wage earners use it to buy clothes, groceries, pay rent, whatever. What are the sales revenues generated? It's going to be equal to whatever they spend on the wages because they're going to turn around and spend it. Okay. So, so far, we have two billion in sales, and we have two billion in productive expenditures, productive expenditure being 
the spending for capital goods and labor. Mm-hmm. Now, what about cost of production? Suppose this happened year after year after year. That way we can deal with the problem of what if you're constructing a, a factory that lasts 10, 20, 30 years? Suppose part of the spending is for factories that uh, have uh, multi-decade lives. Where will annual costs be headed? In other words, suppose year in and year out, uh, business firms were spending 2,000 units of money on uh, capital goods and labor. Could we make any inference as to aggregate costs in the economy at some point? Uh, <laughs> help me out here, just because it's okay. it's I'm I'm getting mixed up as to what what your framework is, and I'm trying to think of you know okay. I'm, I'm going back and forth. Okay, all right. Now imagine that everything, uh, nothing lasted more than one year. Mm-hmm. So business firms in the aggregate are spending two thousand units of money to buy capital goods of all different descriptions and pay wages, but right. nothing more than a year. What would be the, the costs of production that would appear in the income statements of all these business firms taken together? It would be 2000 right? 2000 And what's yeah. their sales? We've um, already, already answered this. You're saying it would be 2000 because everyone would turn around yeah. and spend it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay. Now, let's introduce the complication that some of the capital goods last two years. Mm-hmm. And we'll depreciate on a straight line basis. So we'll charge only half the expenditure for capital goods in that year. If we do this for two years or more, what will be the annual uh, cost of production charged against sales? Oh, you're saying the so the amount spent on the fixed equipment would only be half each year? Yeah, yeah in each year. But now if we have two yeah. years, if we have two years, it's the same as if everything were, were charged off in the first year. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm getting tripped up because it's in the second year. Are they buying another bunch of factories? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to last beyond the next horizon. Yeah, we're repeating the same thing year after year. Right. Okay. So year. Does after it year, matter what? How much? So, I'm sorry. It, it's um. Don't I need to know how how much the wages are relative to the productive expenditures? Yeah, you do. You already know a thousand units of money. There's a thousand units of money. Oh, you, okay. I, yes. So sorry, I missed you. You said it was fifty-fifty. Okay, so I I forgot that you had said that. Okay. Okay. All right. So, so then it's only it's only fifth. The costs are only fifteen hundred each year. Well, no, uh, it'd be fifteen hundred in the first year. Right. But in year two, while you only have five hundred of depreciation on the assets acquired in year two. What about depreciation on the assets acquired in year one? Okay, so you're saying you carried forward 500 on that one? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it goes back up to 2,000 then? Yeah. Okay. And now to generalize further, suppose we have some assets that last 40 years, but we're repeating this process year after year after year indefinitely. What will be the cost of production charged against sales from year 40 on. Is back up to 2000? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If, if productive expenditure and sales remain constant, if, if productive expenditure were the only source of sales, costs and sales would be equal at some point. 
Uh-huh. Okay. Now, so there's this tendency for costs and sales to equalize, which is extremely disturbing. Because what's happened to profit? We need profit. Mm-hmm. Now, one way to have profit is if there was an increase in the quantity of money and volume of spending. In that case, as long as productive expenditure and sales are growing, costs will never fully catch up to sales. There'll always be a difference. Sales will always be ahead of cost. Mm-hmm. So that would be one way of explaining profit. But that's very unsatisfying. That would mean the rate of profit uh, depended simply on the increase in the quantity of money. So what we need to do is freeze the quantity of money, freeze the volume of spending. And I call this invariable money, a money which is reflected in a fixed aggregate volume of expenditure year in and year out. We want to explain the existence of profit in that context. What allows business firms to sell year in and year out for more than they're buying? And what, what they're buying is a, is a constant, what they're spending is a constant, and what they're selling for is, a, is another larger constant. Where does the excess come from? Well, what gave me my epiphany was the realization that this excess came from the consumption of the owners and creditors of business themselves. The wages show up as cost. Mm-hmm. Interest payments will show up as cost too, but we'll ignore that. We'll, we'll consider profit gross of interest, pre-deduction of interest. Okay. We'll take profit gross of interest. Now, where else does uh, profit come from? Well, business firms pay dividends. Dividends are not a cost deducted from sales. And partnerships and proprietorships have draw payment. The owners and the proprietors and the partners uh, simply draw funds from their firms and uh, consume them. So this uh, led me to the realization that the demand for the products of business exceeds the demand for factors of production of business by business by the amount of the consumption expenditure of the owners and creditors of business. And this I call net consumption. The, the consumption of the owners and creditors of business enables sales revenues to be greater than cost, to be greater than productive expenditure and greater than wage payments. The consumption to be greater than wage payments. Okay. I see that. I definitely see within your framework how that works. And is that your response to the the thing that Rothbard said that was troubling you? Like you're showing a, a, a specific example where there could be continued, yeah, that's, uh, that's, profits. That's the that's the framework of the response. And you mm-hmm. see, what I worked out was I had a set of assumptions. Uh, I, I assumed year in and year out we have the same magnitude of sales revenues. Mm-hmm. I think I, I used a thousand of sales revenues, and year in and year out. We have the same magnitude of costs, uh, I think 900. So we've got the same magnitude of profit, 100. And I worked, I incorporated into this structure a continuing increase in production. So I had to develop a theory of capital accumulation and fit that in too. Uh, I I assume that the economy as a whole is similar uh, to the conditions of a self-sufficient farmer. Mm-hmm. 
in order to produce, the farmer has to consume capital. That's productive consumption. That's a, an idea from the classical economists. Like eat some of the seed corn? Yeah, that's the seed corn. Mm-hmm. You have to consume the seed corn to produce the product. Now, in order to have economic progress, essentially you want to produce a larger quantity of seed corn than you use up. You use up seed corn in producing seed corn and in producing corn products, the corn consumer goods. Right. Okay. Now, uh, there's a certain proportion of your output that you have to devote to seed corn if you want to replace the seed corn you use up. I call this the maintenance proportion. Mm-hmm. So they, let's say the maintenance proportion is 50%. You have to devote half of your output to producing capital goods just to replace the capital goods you use up. And you devote the other half of your output to consumers' goods. Well, this gives you a stationary economy. Now, let's assume you're going to devote 60% of your ability to produce to producing seed corn and only 40% to producing uh, corn consumer goods. All right. Now, if we'll assume we, we start off, we have, I, I call it 1K of capital goods, 1K of capital goods. We have 1K of capital goods, 1L of labor. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming if we did nothing but produce seed corn, we could produce 2K. We could produce 2K of capital goods, but no consumer's goods. We'd die of starvation right away. Or at the opposite extreme, we could produce 2C of consumer goods and no capital goods. Then we'd die of starvation the next year. Right. All right. All right. So let's assume we uh, devote 60% of our production to capital goods, and 40% to consumer goods. Now we'll have 1.2K of capital goods and 0.8C of consumer goods. Okay. Okay. Then in the second year, we're now producing with 1.2K of capital goods, and we're again going to be producing in the same 60-40 proportions. So with 1.2K, we should be able to produce 1.44K if we devote 60% to capital goods. And we should be able to produce, I believe, 0.96 B of consumer. And it'll increase 20% a year in both categories. Mm -hmm. Now, we can incorporate this into the monetary framework. Year in and year out, we have a thousand of sales revenues and we have 900 of costs. We've got 100 of profit. And we could calculate the rate of profit. All we have to do is calculate what's the monetary amount of profit. And we have increasing production. Production is increasing 20% a year. But prices are falling in the ratio of five to six year in and year out. But we can physically examine it. It becomes an economics testing laboratory. We can physically examine, here's prices falling before our eyes at one-sixth per year. But the rate of profit is constant. So it's like an mm-hmm. empirical demonstration. It's as close as you can come to an empirical laboratory in economics. Now, I go into all of this in the, the most incredible detail in capitalism. I don't leave a stone unturned. Mm-hmm. I hope maybe this would incentivize you to read the book. Yeah, well, well, right. And this is uh, that's partly what I am did want to talk about this stuff is because I know you have this massive treatise and 
people are intimidated by it. And so, yeah, I want you to, you know, explain, you know, so, so people understand, no, there's, there's stuff in here and it's worth exploring because it's, you're not merely restating what other people have said. You've got a lot of original stuff in this book. Yeah. Well, I really think I do. And uh, I think there's all kinds of things that follow from it. Okay. I, th- I think, is there, is there anything else you wanted to add or should we wrap up? I think maybe we should wrap up and uh, it, we remember very much war that we want to discuss. We can always have another conversation. Yeah, yeah. I, I was going to say that too because um, the longer this goes, it's like diminishing marginal return where people are, aren't going to start it if it looks too long. And I want them definitely to hear the stuff you said already. Okay, yeah. well, folks, um, folks, I will put links to this and you know, George's book is available both in print and also the you know online. Um, so the links for all this stuff and the things we've talked about will be at bobmurphyshow.com slash 139. My guest has been George Reisman. Uh, George, thanks so much for your time. Uh, Bob, one last thing. Would you uh, please mention it's available on Amazon.com. All they have to do is uh, search under my name, R-E-I-S-M-A-N, or the title of the book. Yes, for, for sure, folks. The, um, I'll I'll have direct links, George. But yes, the, it is available on Amazon um, and other places. So yes, I will I will give the links at bobmurphyshow.com slash one thirty nine. Yeah, I have to say I want to say this is the best interview I've had. I, I I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Thank you so much. And and I should say that it's I I didn't I I have read some of your stuff and it it clicked with me on this this discussion. So hopefully. At least people now, if they hear this, will say, oh, that's what Reisman's been saying this whole time. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank <laughs> you so much, Bob. Sure thing. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com. <laughs>